As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Coming up, Sam Kapow's Chelsea to the top of the table. Bunnies a sure thing at City and unrest and distrust in Canada. It's Lindsay Hooper here with you after a tense weekend of WSL action. And joining me to talk through those matches is the Athletic's Michael Cox. Hello, Michael. Good to have you back. Thank you for having me on. And also Bristol City coach, which is now how I'm introducing her, Anita Asante. Hello to you. Hi, Lindsay. Great to be back. And Anita, so much has happened since the last time we had you on the show, not only in your coaching career, you got married as well. Huge congratulations there. But I think the last time we spoke, you just accepted the job at Bristol City, but I haven't had the lowdown. So how are you enjoying your coaching experience so far? Yeah, so far, so good. I can't complain. I think uh, it's been a great sort of early experience for me to transition into coaching with Bristol. Um, I really enjoyed the environment, the coaching staff and and the players. So far, we've had a really good season, lots of momentum as well behind us. So, um, you know, it's been challenging in different ways in in a sort of new unknown in terms of out of a different comfort zone. But um, I've learned a lot so far in this job. Well, I'm rubbing my hands together because we already knew we had the analysis from Michael Cox today to go and dive really deep into some of the whys and wheres uh, of different tactics this weekend. But now with your coaching hat on, I've got two of you. We can go really to town on this. Chelsea fans, what a game. Absolute shifts from everyone. Crowd was amazing, as always. We keep going. Busy week coming up, but we are top of the league. Let's enjoy this one. 
So Chelsea returned to the top of the table following their 1-0 win over title rivals Manchester United thanks to a first-half Sam Kerr goal. That was the first first-half goal that United have conceded in the league all season. So I'll start with you, Michael, in terms of this just being a narrow victory. I mean, the game was billed as a really big one when it comes to the title. Man United had been top. This result means that Chelsea now leapfrog them. And there's, of course, that game in hand that we have to think about too. But in terms of the way the two teams set up, was it as you expected? Yeah, I guess so. You looked at the Chelsea team sheet and you thought for a Chelsea side, they don't really have as many attacking threats as we're used to. Um, obviously, Kirby and Harder have been out for a long time this season, but with with Reeton not there on the left flank, with um, Aaron Cuthbert out injured as well, I think both short-term issues. But you kind of looked at the team sheet and you were thinking, well, it's either going to be Lauren James dribbles or it's going to be balls over the top for Sam Kerr. And Lauren James wasn't at her best, I don't think. And it, it really was, in the end, quite one-dimensional. It was just you know, not hoofs in behind, but really long passes in behind for Sam Kerr. Created three chances in the first half. The first one was saved. The second one was saved. And the third one, she came up with an extraordinarily good finish. And then after that, it was like Chelsea just wanted to put the game to bed. I mean, it was a, you know, a relatively defensive lineup they they used from the outset because of those injuries. But I think when, uh, when Emma Hayes brought on Magda Eriksson, for Jesse Fleming, you're like, okay, I understand what the game plan is here. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't create much else. But to their credit, I don't think Manchester United really had a chance in the in the game, to be honest. I know Mark Skinner was complaining about a lack of um, decisions from the referee, but I'm struggling to recall anything in open play that, that Manchester United created. And I think you have to give credit uh, to Chelsea for that, for just seeing the game out. Yeah, from what I understand, Guru Wrighton, that was a very late call on the day due to illness. There has been some illness in the Chelsea squad, which, as you point out, Michael, when you've got other injuries, attacking-wise means that Chelsea, for once, which is so unusual, we look at them and they're quite sparse. I mean, they do have Sam Kerr and it was a direct approach. And I know you've wrote, written about this in your analysis for The Athletic as well, Michael, that, you know, had it not worked, it probably would have been criticised being so direct, but it did. And it came off. Yeah, it's the funny thing when we talk about football matches having having happened in the past, it's always kind of judged by the outcome. And yeah, if, if that third chance, if she lobs that over the crossbar, then maybe we're saying, well, Chelsea, they were so predictable. They only had one approach, you know. But if you've got an approach that revolves around Sam Kerr, who does have a habit of scoring goals like that in really big games then yeah, that's, that's, uh, it's tough to criticise them because it, it clearly caused Manchester United problems. And yeah, the third time, it brought the only goal. There is something about her scoring against Manchester United. The last day of the season, we'll all remember that one. It ended up being one of the goals of the season and she's gone and scored another. Um, Anita, from a Manchester United point of view, when Mark Skinner came out afterwards, speaking very strongly about decisions that he thinks has gone have gone against Manchester United, not just in this game, he also thinks that ones in other games have as well. Um, where were you on that? Were you on his side of the fence or were you sitting somewhere different? Yeah, well, I could understand Mark Skinner's frustration. Um, Man United dominated possession doesn't mean that they were the dominant team because you got to be effective with that possession and create goals, uh, great goal scoring opportunities, which they weren't able to do from open play, really. They didn't test Anne Katrin Berger at all. But of course, they did have the two penalty shouts, which in my opinion were penalties. So I can understand why he would be disgruntled because those are pivotal moments in the game that can absolutely swing momentum in your favour or not. And it, and it just didn't go for them. So, 
yeah, from that perspective, absolutely, you know, he would be disappointed. But playing at King's Meadow is a very tough place to go and, and meet a Chelsea side that rarely have defeats there. And when it comes to decisions, I mean, I was there at King's Meadow on Wednesday on International Women's Day as they face Brighton. And I was just observing Sam Kerr making these runs, these timely runs off the shoulder, which, of course, they were reliant on in this game, not having as many outlets. And she was getting so frustrated when she felt she'd timed her run to perfection and then the offside flag would go up. So I don't think this is just an overall referee issue. I think this is all of the officials, sometimes the fourth officials as well. And and I wonder if the time has come where on platforms like this, Michael, we should be demanding that the referees are full time. I can't see that this can continue in the way that it is because you're always, whether the decision you feel is correct or not, we've got nothing to back it up. So you have people feeling disgruntled, but you've also got officials, and it was pointed out to me by a colleague at the weekend, that are expected to keep up with full-time athletes and, and they're doing it on the side. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with all that. And I think as well, there's such such big media pressure. You know, I saw on Twitter today, there was a video going around of Sky Sports News doing their kind of ref watch thing. And I don't know, it just feels a bit a bit harsh to me when, when these referees are kind of getting castigated for, you know, decisions when they're not full time. And also they're almost being judged in the same way as we judge referees who have the, the use of VAR now in, in the men's game or at the top of the men's game. So yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it is a bit of an issue. And, you know, sometimes when you look at these referees, when they coach in the men's game, they're kind of coaching at the fifth, sixth tiers, which shows that, you know, with all due respect to them, the women's game probably isn't getting the officiating it deserves now. Are those discussions that you have, Anita, at Bristol City in, in terms of, look, you know, everyone keeps going on about VAR, which is at the moment, way too far ahead of where we actually are what we need are officials that are full-time are being paid and then as we're going to see in future seasons those those battles in the championship they're going to be worth a lot of money in the future and we talk about it going from the championship to the premier league and how much is is weighed on that now we know it's not at that level at the moment but if the game continues to grow then it could get even more important yeah, but it's also worth noting we don't have VAR in the men's championship or League One. So, you know, the, the same arguments or discussions happen within, you know, that microcosm of the game. But in terms of the women's game, yes, absolutely. You know, referees would like to be supported as much as players as we're trying to support players and coaches in the modern game. You know, if they can be full time, then it, definitely they'll be able to develop their skills to the level that we're saying the women's game is at which is highly elite, you know, so that they can keep up with those decisions. They can spot them better. They can communicate with the fourth officials adequately because now in terms of money and investment, the whole business aspect, massive pressure on clubs, on players, on, on coaches too. This could decide your season. This could decide whether or not you're in and out of a job. Um, so all those things matter now. So those, mm -hmm. those decisions are even more uh, relevant or important I would say so you know really that's how we want to spearhead it forward yeah it does feel as well with everything else around the women's game growing exponentially it's the one area that just needs the focus first first and foremost um let's talk about those penalty decisions then Michael to the naked eye, and obviously you get that first reaction, I thought that the one that looked particularly bad was Carter on Badger um would you agree I would. I must admit the the press box at Kings Meadow is the complete wrong end of the ground for this. So I was a good yes. 
90, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I was a good 90 yards away. And then I came back and I was like, well, I'll watch the highlights on the BBC. And that was obviously not possible as well. So I've only just seen the decisions. Um, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think the first one, the referee's view was, was quite clearly obscured by another player. So I don't blame her for not seeing that. The second one, yeah, I must admit in real time for me, it looked like just a coming together, two players going for an aerial ball. But like I say, I was 90 metres away. And, and from the replays, it does seem that, uh, that Badger got the ball first. And was taken out, really. So, um, yeah, I I think the second one, probably, they can feel aggrieved about. As a former defender, Anita, uh, what did Chelsea do so well? But you can also give us your coaching specs for this one, too. (laughs) Uh, What did Chelsea do so well? Well, I think, you know, partly why Chelsea is successful is the adaptability. You know, Emma's tinkered in the last two games with the system. When she's needed to play a 3-5-2, she could do it. She could flip to a 4 in the defensive line uh, to shore up shop. You've got no nonsense defenders, rightly or wrongly. You know, Jess Carter in that challenge is super aggressive. She doesn't want anything in that box um, as a threat. You've got Millie Bright, you know, who's growing and growing, I think, has been exceptional both for Chelsea and England, um, you know, out of possession, in possession. Um, And I think there's a, a clear understanding uh, between those players now um, in terms of the way they want to play in and out of possession. It would suggest from Emma Hayes, because she put so many players behind the ball for this one, maybe it was her showing respect to Manchester United and the way that they've been playing and the threat she thought they'd have. But it's not very often we've seen her do that, Michael, whereby she's really stacked players behind the ball. I think Leopold's probably was the first player that you'd think was advanced enough to start moving forward, but everyone else was just protection yeah especially in the second half I mean five at the back Neve Charles as, as a left winger Ingle in front of the defence it was like seven players there to just block up the pitch really and I thought I thought maybe Manchester United could have been a bit more adventurous with what they did I mean Mark Skinner made a change about 10 minutes from time where he brought off um, Nikita Paris who I thought was really bright probably Manchester United's most uh, dangerous attacker on the day and brought on uh, Ethan Mannion Obviously, you know, a centre-back for a winger. And I know that the fullbacks push up and they switch to three at the back, but I, I just thought you could have brought on an extra attacker without getting rid of one. And uh, Lucia Garcia came on in stoppage time, I think 91st minute, a player who made a, maybe could have made a difference. So, I mean, you know, he talked to, you know, he talks about the possession after the game and how in control of that Manchester United were, but I couldn't help feeling that maybe he could have use the fact United were so in control of the ball to just bring on an extra attacker and ask more questions of the Chelsea defence. Because I thought it was quite feeble in the end. For you know, for all they had of, of the ball, they just didn't create any chances. Well, I think we've covered both sides well there. And we know that it's going to be all down to the wire in the title race. I don't think we've known it like this, have we, with four teams in it. Uh, Michael, you did as well write an article earlier on in the season about uh, noon kickoffs. You said noon <laughs> is too early for football. I think this was back in January. This was another noon kickoff. Um, how was it at the smaller stadium? <laughs> well, we had, we had, uh, it was 12.30, so we had an extra half hour at least. No, <laughs> I, I think I wrote that in, so I went to Chelsea Arsenal at Kings Meadow last year and it was a Friday night game. And the atmosphere was so good. It was so exciting under the lights. It was just a brilliant occasion. And then I think the equivalent fixture this year was was in midday and it just felt a little bit subdued. But yeah, I mean, it was quite good. I mean, 
this game sold out a long time ago. Manchester United, obviously a really big draw in London. I think it was about a month ago the tickets sold out for this one. And it's it's an improved situation now you have kind of more established away ends, I think, at these matches. It just, the atmosphere is a little bit better. It's a little bit more tribal, I suppose, in a, in a, in a positive way. So yeah, it didn't, um, it didn't feel lacking in atmosphere this time, I must say. Maybe the extra half hour makes a difference, I don't know. Oh, it does. Take it from me, it can. Uh, the biggest win of the weekend saw Arsenal beat Reading 4-0 at Meadow Park. It's a result that sees them just three points off second place now with a game in hand. They are the other team that had a game in hand along with Chelsea. And I guess that the initial reaction when you saw the team lineups for this one, Anita, was that Jonas Eideval had to do some tinkering. Uh, we talk about Chelsea having injuries. Well, Arsenal, very well documented, have got big injuries. Um, and it was Marnham who was given that responsibility to be further forward. Kim Little, instead of being that defensive shield, was given that 10 role and could push on. What did you make of the way that Arsenal set up? Yeah, I thought it was very exciting and fluid um, and, and and shows that they have very versatile players that Jonas trusts to sort of take on those responsibilities and and execute them. You know, Marnham's got a number of goals this season for Arsenal in attacking positions. I thought Kim Little was exceptional in the Conti Cup final, even though she was more of a defensive midfielder. You know, she can control things, but it allowed her to control things higher up the pitch as well. Um, and then you get to see the qualities of Leah Williamson slotting into midfield seamlessly, um, having a massive impact, obviously, in the game and, uh, that's what you want to see from a title chasing team, that they can do that, that they can be adaptable, that other players can step up um, when they're needed, when key play, other key players are out. And I think they showed that about themselves. Yeah, Leah Williamson's such an interesting one because for this, she got player of the match. So not only did she get to score a first goal for, for just over a year, which we saw the celebration and what that meant to her, um, but she, she was sensational in this. However, after the match in the Sky coverage, back in the studio, they were keen to ask her about this being switched between central defence and midfield. And Michael, she made it clear that she sees her future as a central defender and the way she went on to explain that was that she could see how she could improve there, what's needed from her to be world-class, is what I was inferring as she was stood there in the rain, bless her heart, because she was getting absolutely poured on doing that interview. Um, would you would you agree that central defence is where she's best to slot in? Or do you think that her future could be in midfield? I, I think she probably will be a centre-back long-term. I must say, I really enjoy it when a player's asked about that and they just have a firm opinion because usually they, they feel you know compelled to say, oh, I'm happy to play wherever. But it's just nice to see that a player yeah, has a, has a strong view on it. Um, yeah, I think long-term she's a centre-back, but I think she's really... She's just very exciting when she plays in midfield. I mean, that's the funny thing. It's not like she just plays as a holding midfielder all the time. She's driving forward. She's good at carrying the ball. She can score goals, as we saw in, in this game. And it's actually, I mean, similar to how she played in the in the England side in the uh, in the build-up to the Euros last year. It was Kira Walsh playing the holding role and Williamson with number eight on her back, playing as a number eight, driving forward. So, yeah, I think she can play either role really well. And, you know, like, like you say, it was a few players were in different roles. Marnham did really well. I thought it was interesting that Jonas Eidevold played 
McCabe on the left and Ford on the right, which is the opposite to usual, just really stretching the play. I thought created gaps in the Reading side for Arsenal to play through. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many players at the top level these days who just can play three or four positions. And if you were watching them for the first time, you would have had no idea that Williamson usually plays at the back or Marnham usually plays in midfield. They're just so adaptable. There is a brilliant clip as well of Leah Williamson having a human umbrella. I don't know whether you saw this, where she was just sheltering under one of the the coaching staff. Um, It was really funny, but we didn't bring the human umbrella over for the interview, unfortunately. Um, I was given a glance, though, to Serena Wiegmann, who was there watching. Every time Leah did something really great from that midfield role, she was just a few seats along, and I kept shooting her a look as if to go, she's going to put her down as a midfielder for the next game. Um, I think we'll have to wait for that one. I do want to give Reading some airtime here because the first goal it was a penalty Kim Little scored it but it was a questionable decision I've watched that back over and over on replay Anita and the thing is for teams like Reading who haven't got that backup and we are reminded Jackie Oatley was reminding us in commentary that you know they're the only team now left in WSL that aren't supported by a Premier League team but those decisions are huge for them to go one I mean maybe even the second goal had a question mark to it as well yeah, those are the crucial decisions. And I, I'm like you, Lindsay, when I watched it a few times, um, on initial viewing, I, I really didn't think it was a penalty. I, I thought it was quite soft. Katie got one like that, as we saw in the Conti Cup, which was a clear penalty, I must add. But this is a difficulty for defenders in the box. They know they have to be extra cautious. You don't want to give or ask a question of the referee in those moments, but they definitely don't expect that teams like Arsenal get the extra leg up in a game like that, you know, with a decision so early that swung in their favour. So yeah, I would have been just as disappointed as a defender in that situation, you know, to to have been faced with a call like that, as soft as that was. Um, I would, you know, think we'd give the benefit of the doubt to the defenders in that situation. Um, Reading have really struggled this season for clean sheets, you know, obviously to score goals and and those situations don't help matters further. More importantly, because of the confidence in the side, mm. it just makes them deflated. You know, everyone's working hard to stay in the game. So you need referees and officials to just manage those situations better. From what I recall as well, they had a harsh decision in the Chelsea match too, which they ran really close. And I don't, I don't know this off the top of my head. I'd be really keen to find out which team has had the most decisions go against them. But Michael, I, I would suspect that Reading would be right up there towards the top of that list. Yeah, possibly. Uh, and like you say, I mean, I've got a bit of a soft spot for Reading in a way because, like you say, they're not supported by a Premier League club, but they tend to give it a go against the the big stars. They caused Chelsea a lot of problems over the last couple of years. So, yeah, they, they collapsed a little bit here, to be honest. But, um, yeah, always, always quite like to see them doing well. Yeah, and a mention for their goalkeeper, Grace Maloney, because the 4-0 scoreline, I, mean, I think we knew at half-time this, this game was done. And really for Reading, it's the next two where they're playing sides in and around them in this relegation fight that's going to be key. But Grace Maloney did give some hints because she she made a couple of key saves. It could have been more for Arsenal in this. So um, maybe she will be an important player for them uh, towards the end of the season. Uh, Let's move on to Manchester City because Bunny Shaw, she is starting to pull away in that golden boot race, scoring her 15th league goal of the campaign. Her late goal got City the win against Brighton. They're now level on points with United. Is she the best striker 
right now, Michael. I know that you saw Sam Kerr up close and she scores in the big games, but is is Bunny Shaw the best this season? This season, I think she is. I mean, I, I think if I'm building a team, I'd probably still go for Sam Kerr and then me, Demars, as my first two picks. But yeah, she's been outstanding this season. And the second goal was so good. I mean, I think that's a situation where a lot of strikers don't even get shot away. And just to take that, you know, let the ball come across her body onto her left foot. I think three defenders pretty much went the wrong way, expecting her to almost take a, a touch onto her right foot. But the spin and hit was so good. And uh, that felt like a pretty big goal going in kind of really just changes the like you say it's so tight at the top of the league table I mean it's goals like this that yeah could really make a difference come the end of the campaign her one-two with Hasegawa was awesome Anita is the sort of team movement and just understanding between players of where they are and linking up that I imagine would get played back in training that week to say this is what we want to see more of oh yeah I thought it was sublime you know Hasegawa as well playing slightly higher up the pitch um, normally, you know, a defensive midfielder and just that reverse pass into the box as well for the initial one, you know, was superb. But, but I think that's testament to the way Man City play. They're a team that you see their rotations, you see their passing combinations and movements, and they're really hard to stop when they get into that momentum and that rhythm. Um, and, you know, having players like that who have the vision, first and foremost, but also recognise where who they're trying to find I think that's why they've been so effective with Bunny Shaw because they're always looking to the the highest player on the pitch how can we get her involved in the game how can we distribute and get her service we know she's a threat in the box both aerially and on the ground her hold-up play is superb and honestly I just think she doesn't get the hype that she deserves actually I think you know she I've played against her she's a very difficult player to meet because She's got physical presence, you know, she's powerful, she's quick, but she's intelligent. And her footwork for, you know, her, her height and everything is actually much more impressive than people really, I think, can really take note of. The wider question is, are City getting the hype they deserve? I suppose not just Bunny Shaw. So I'm going to ask this to both of you because City are on a 13-match unbeaten run in the league. I think even four weeks ago, we weren't even talking about them in the title race. They've just been plodding on, Michael. Are they the ones that the ascendancy is with at the minute? Yeah, they're in great form. I mean, like you say, I just didn't think they'd be anywhere near this um, this title race this season, to be honest. I thought after the players they lost last summer, I mean, the whole midfield and, and Lucy Bronze as well, just didn't think they'd recover in time to to be a part of it. But yeah, I must admit they've kind of crept up on me. I was slightly surprised to see that they're quite so close to the top. Um, I'd still have Chelsea down as, as favourites at the moment because I think they've got a very good knack of of winning when they're not at their best. But yeah, maybe City are doing that as well. Anita? Yeah, I think, you know, I'd agree. I think City are just quietly going about their business. They probably didn't really think they would be in, in for a shot initially. You know, this is a transition year, transitioning new players in. Um, but they've, you know, exceeded probably a lot of people's expectations and rightly are in the position that they're in now. Before we move on... I can't without talking about Spurs and their current run of form. Whilst we're talking about City being electric, well, what's the opposite of electric? Fizzling out. I think that's how we'd talk about Spurs right now. They've not won for nine matches. Nine matches. And you can't even say that this is down to not having the firepower because Bethany England broke records by scoring in loads of those, but being on the losing side. 
I think the Liverpool result in particular, Anita, is the one that's now caught everyone's attention. Do you think that Rianne Skinner will now be under considerable pressure? Because there was a way of justifying some of the other results. I I saw that Liverpool fixture and I thought if they lose that, then questions really need to be asked. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Rianne Skinner would definitely be feeling the pressure because this was a Tottenham team that only a few seasons ago we were talking about, you know, in and around the top three, four teams potentially pushing them and now nine games on the trot without a single win Liverpool was one of those fixtures they would have eyed up and gone yeah we can maybe get points from this game but I think worse still is they're not getting clean sheets and Tottenham is a side especially under Rianne Skinner that would have prided themselves on being very organised very disciplined out of position hard to beat and they have been completely the opposite of that and the fact that there hasn't been more chat, I think, about Tottenham, the situation in terms of the management and results is quite interesting as well. Yeah, because they've spent money. I'm actually going to be at this game on Wednesday where they take on Leicester. That's now huge. It is a really big game. If they lose that one and it's 10, then I do wonder for, for Skinner's future there. Um, worth as well mentioning that the last win that they had was the 30th of October against Brighton. But do you remember this score? So the last win they had was 8-0. It was 8-0. What on earth? The wheels have come up. Is there anything that you've spotted, Anita, with them that you think they could amend? I just still feel there's a lack of creativity within that Tottenham team. I always said they would need a bit of stardust to help them. And I think Bethany England was definitely the right acquisition in terms of a goal scorer. But, you know, in those midfield areas, somewhat those those the link-up play players that make things happen um, sort of, you know, the kind of composers of the team, I think they're really missing. And then in those moments where they have the numbers defensively, they've just not been um, making the the best decisions and they've not been aggressive enough. So I really do think they need to be better in those situations. Okay, well, let's leave that there and turn our attention now to some matters overseas. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. One of the stories we've been following in recent weeks has been the fallout in the French Football Federation. And this week saw the sacking of long-term head coach Corinne Diacre. It wouldn't be right for us to not hear from Charlotte Harper, who's been across this for us, and for The Athletic. Here she is with the latest chapter. So we've had Wendy Renard's statement saying she would be stepping back from the French national team. We then had Noah Leclerc, the Federation's president, resign on Tuesday the 28th of February. That meant that interim president Philippe Diallo stepped up and he got a working group together to say, go away and come back with what you think we should do 
in regards to Corin Diacre, the head coach's position. That group consisted of four people, Laura Georges, Aline Riera, Jean-Michel Olas and Mark Keller, and they presented their recommendations to the Federation on Thursday. It found that a rupture had reached a point of no return, which is detrimental to the interests of the national team, and Corin Diacre's contract was terminated. Interesting that they also added the way in which the players expressed their criticism was no longer acceptable in the future. So though same four people, Georges, Riera, Olas and Keller, it's their responsibility led by Olas to interview candidates and make recommendations. Now several names have been mentioned as who could be a suitable replacement, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're willing to leave their current roles. PSG's Gérard Prescheur has been mentioned in French press, but from those sources who have spoken to The Athletic, he hasn't been approached by the Federation yet. He knows the system very well, having spent 14 years at Clairefontaine, the equivalent of St George's Park, in roles such as head of women's football and the under-20 women's coach. Eric Blaric, Diacre's former assistant, was said to be a favourite among the players, as reported by L'Equipe, but he left Diacre's team in the summer of 2021. Division 1 coaches Sonia Bonpasteur and Sabrine Souberon, who coach Lyon and Paris FC respectively, have also been put in the mix. But again, it's unclear whether they would be interested in taking up the role, as has Hervé Renard, the former men's Morocco and Saudi Arabian coach. Bordeaux's women's coach Patrice Lair is still waiting for the federation to make a call and an approach. And Lens women's coach Sarah Embarak and Noel Tozzi are also willing to be considered. As for whether Wendy Renard will return to the French national team, that's yet to be decided. Diacre claimed that she had been the subject of a smear campaign, which is astonishing in its violence and dishonesty, quote unquote. Uh, this was in a statement to AFP from her lawyer. In short, Anita, I mean, it's such a mess. But when have we known French football going into a major tournament not being a bit of a mess? <laughs> That's very true. I mean, since I played for England, that was always the case. We always thought France has so much potential, so many quality players, um, but they just didn't get over the final hurdle winning major tournaments. And it was always some fractious uh, kind of relationship within the squad or with the management. And again, that appears to be the case um, again, which is a shame, you know, to see. Do you think they have the equivalent discussions that we've had over in England about the golden generation that that haven't quite achieved what you expect them to? Yeah, absolutely. You know, they've had fantastic players like, you know, Sonia Pampasteur, who's playing at Lyon, yeah, Le Sommet, Nassib, uh, who, who I used to just think was, wow, you know, even as a, a competitor. So the fact that, you know, they've had all these unbelievable players and not really won any major tournaments, um, speaks speaks volumes with that kind of level of t talent because you think well has there been some form of mismanagement you know and handling of the players but also in terms of coaching them to sort of achieve their potential um mm -hmm. and and to see big players like Wendy Renard the captain come out and say you know I I can't deal with the situation anymore um I'm going to speak out and I'm going to walk away from international football is just astounding really um, and, and to see other players follow suit, you know, Kudertu, um as well, Diani and, and Marie-Antoinette Katoto, 
you know, these are big international players. That Buadi. Buadi, you know, have been on on the international stage for a very long time, but are key players to this squad and key leaders. So to see them take a stand really signifies that there's big, big problems within that federation. With Diakra now gone, there is still so much to unfold because they will recruit someone else, hopefully in the near future, so that they've got enough time ahead of the World Cup together. We could see some reverse decisions as well. That's the next thing. Will we see Wendy Renard play in Australia and New Zealand? Uh, there's every chance she could go back into the fold, but there's a lot to be done there. Unfortunately, it's not just France that are going through a reckoning at the moment. Over the pond, um, Canada soccer has also been criticised by players for seeing the women's team as an afterthought. Joining us now, it's the athletic Steph Young to explain all. Steph, thank you for joining us. Uh, for those who haven't got any idea what's been going on with Canada soccer, can you bring us up to date? I know this is an impossible task to do it quickly, but um, I want to know how we've got to the point that a, a hearing is needed. Well, as is typical in a lot of these disputes, it's been a lot of back and forth. I would say the flashpoint was, of course, when Canada was participating in She Believes in the United States in that friendly tournament, where it came out that they had a lot of grievances against Canada soccer, not least of which they, they had not been paid for their performances in the year 2022, wow. um, which if you think about it, that was the year they qualified for a World Cup, uh, among other things. I believe they played something like 17 times for the federation anyway yeah they they did a lot of protesting they obviously wore shirts that said enough is enough they wore purple wristbands for equal pay there were teams obviously the other teams in the tournament usa japan and brazil but other teams as far away as australia and new zealand expressed their support i know england chipped in as well with some displays of support so then it goes back and forth for a while um, where it gets cagey for a bit because nobody wants to say too much about the labor dispute due to you know legal reasons. And then Canada Soccer drops this big email on all media listing everything that they're trying to do with the CBA. And then, you know, the Canadian players testify in front of Parliament saying, actually, we wish they had not done that. This should be like we kept our mouths shut. So why didn't you guys keep your mouth shut? Like you're just trying to, honestly, it was very reminiscent of the United States and that power struggle between uh, U.S. Soccer Federation and the players where the Federation would do something to try and make their case in, in the public eye. And the players would say, again, we're keeping our mouths shut. So why aren't you keeping your mouth shut about the legal side? Anyway, uh, that kind of brings us up to where we are now after the players have testified in front of Parliament, basically saying they fully don't trust the Federation. It'll take a long time, even though the Federation has hired a former national team player themselves to replace outgoing President Nick Bontis, Charmaine Crooks, formerly Hooper. They said, we don't trust her either because she just did this statement. There's no, there appears to be no trust there, no love there. Yeah, that's where we are. Anita and I have been keeping across this. Unfortunately, just so many disputes between national teams and their federations just across the board in a in a year where there's a World Cup, Steph. It's not great timing. And I imagine the expectations around the team now, are they lower than they once were? I don't know. I think the team obviously is the current uh, holder of the gold medal from the Olympics. Although I think that was a little bit of surprise 
with all due respect, it was a combination of an intense defensive performance, but like a little bit of luck. Although I think it's fair to say you could say that about anybody who wins a major tournament, like luck, you know, tends to have its role in these things. I do think that maybe expectations have been lower just because you saw how they performed at She Believes and the toll, not only that fight, but things like losing training days and being crammed into economy seats took on them over a a nine day, nine, 10 day period with three games, which pretty much simulates a group stage. And you saw it. Yeah, I think people are adjusting their expectations and understanding that when you're competing at the top 0.01% of human performance and you're being expected to do it for a month-long tournament, or I suppose two weeks for a group stage, that these fine margins do start to matter. Even the difference between you know five inches of legroom for a three- or four-hour flight, it can matter. So I, I do hope people look at this and think, let's adjust our expectations accordingly, not just for Canada, but for any other team coming to this that is not going to have the charter flights and the chefs and the trainers. Steph, I wondered, how does this whole uh, dispute affect the dynamic and relationship between Brev Priestman, the head coach, and the players? You know, how is she having to manage you know, those relationships with the Federation whilst trying to deliver in terms of preparation for the the players as well. Bev, I thought, walked a very fine line during She Believes. She was obviously asked about this a lot (laughs) during the tournament. And, you know, she gave um, a pretty diplomatic answer each time with that understanding. As you pointed out, she is an employee of the Federation. Um, She's not a member of the players you know, bargaining unit there. So it's not her place to comment on what's going on with them. So she did talk about how she supports her players. She's with her players emotionally um, and she's doing her best to keep them, you know, keep spirits up and to like be listening to them, understanding them, understanding where they're coming from, managing the reality of the situation, which is that they're tired and frustrated and angry. But at the same time, they're all insane competitors who want to play. So, you know, trying to keep that focus and keep it productive. Christine Sinclair, she's the poster girl for for Canada soccer. She has been for such a long time. And she was tasked with addressing this committee. And and something came out in in the last week, which included a quote from her. And it was all over her own social channels, where she said, I was tasked with outlining our compensation ask on behalf of the women's national team. The president of Canada soccer listened to what I had to say, then later in the meeting referred back to it and said, what was it Christine was bitching about? So you see those sorts of quotes. And and do you think she's put that out there deliberately to say, look, this is what we're up against? Oh, I think that was very tactical of her, which I expect nothing less. The players have been very tactical from the very first minute that they called their own media conference, you know, as a, a players association. And you could tell they've discussed. So that's not just Sink, that's uh, Sophie Schmidt and Quinn and Janine Becky as player representatives. You can tell they've discussed this is what we need to do. And I think they've obviously been talking to their counterparts in the United States because they're teammates with a lot of these players in the NWSL. Um, Christine Sinclair alone and Janine Becky are teammates with Becky Sauerbrunn over on the Portland Thorns. So that's about as good a resource as you could get on like, hey, how did you approach, you know, kind of this like dealing with the public eye and these things like that. So I think that was extremely tactical of Sync to do that. Um, but I thought 
you know, why not let people know just the disrespect that she's had to deal with? She's the all-time international leading goal scorer. And this is the federation that could not arrange for her to break that record in front of a home crowd. She did it in front of like 300 people in front of like in middle of nowhere, Texas. (laughs) Do you think that the federation really understands just how how limited they've supported this national team, you know, over decades. Because I've always had this impression that they've taken credit for household names like Christine Sinclair. She's one of ours, you know, but she's not really been developed in Canada, has she? I mean, she went to play in America as a young player for college. Um, so they need to be sort of hit with these hard facts uh, in terms of a reality check, just in terms of how little they are really supporting the players. Mm -hmm. I think you hit the nail on the head because one of the major points of contention that the players brought up is that the youth pipeline is a mess right now. I think John Herdman, when he was coach of the women's national team, kind of tried to fiddle around and do what he could, but he's only coach. He's not an administrator. Um, And so they pointed out it. I almost laughed in the darkest way possible. Janine Becky actually pointed out there are players who would like to retire, but they feel like they can't because there's nobody to replace them. It's like a a really dark parody of our culture where like you have to keep working. You can't retire yet because you don't have the security in order to retire. And it's kind of the same thing with them. So, yeah, that was a major, major point of contention between them and the Federation. Final one, Steph, um, just looking at US soccer and how vocal they've been about it on behalf of Canada soccer as well, given the experience that they had. Do you think there'll be a similar outcome in the end? I don't know. I think you do have to grapple with the fact that Canada soccer is a federation that doesn't have as much money. Although the players are rightfully pointing out, you guys could have more. Like, what's what's going on there? It seems like you didn't make the best business deals possible. So where is the money? That's literally what Sophie Schmidt said, which is, like, where is the money? We need to see the financials. And it is a country with a smaller population, I think, by something like a tenth of the United States overall population. So a one-to-one comparison is not always fair. Yes, but it is like a country that you expect is fairly prosperous, like is is comparable in that sense. Um, I think I would hope for a a similar outcome just because the players do have the blueprint, not just the United States, but plenty of other federations, you know, Spain, Australia had their own thing. Like a lot of the teams coming into this World Cup tournament have ongoing issues with their federations. France right now (laughs) is going through something very similar. So I think there's a blueprint. The players all talk to each other. And if they don't get some kind of equitable resolution then what is Canada soccer going to do fire them Mm. so hopefully they realize they have the power here Steph thank you so much for your time Um, you've really shed a lot of light on that for us and we will keep across the story so thank you very much thanks for having me on Steph Young of The Athletic there and we'll be keeping across the Canada story as well as the latest on France and Spain here on this podcast. Unfortunately for all of them, it still rumbles on. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Closer to home though, Anita, we haven't spoken about life at Bristol City for you. Top of the championship. How are you enjoying coaching? And is it is it something that you thought you'd take to as well as you have? Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I never thought I'd be in this kind of role. Um, I thought perhaps, you know, my personality as well. I wasn't sure what kind of coach I'd be in it, but I've really enjoyed working with a number of players with different levels of experience. It's a very young team, a really ambitious team um, and a really nice club to work for. Um, and obviously our ambition all along has been trying to push for promotion and we're sort of on the right pathway to hopefully achieve that. And it's just been a great time of, of learning as well in terms of utilising the skills I've had as a player to transfer that onto the pitch and share knowledge with um, younger players. You said that you didn't know what sort of coach you would be. What sort of coach are you? <laughs> well, I think I, I'm quite a, I'd like to say quite a level-headed coach. I try not to um, get caught up in the, the sort of initial emotions of things that you can equally get into as a player as well um and, and and sort of be reflective upon myself and what I'm delivering and whether that's getting across to the team and the individuals in the right way but of course there are times where you know you're frustrated and you think oh why is this not happening or why is it not going to plan straight away um but that's a part that I'm learning it's dealing with people dealing with uh, what makes them tick what gets the best out of them and identifying the strengths in individuals as well and and how you utilize their sort of characteristics so that's been the best part of the journey is just working with multiple people and, and bringing that sort of together Bristol City won 3-0 at the weekend so congratulations on that result against Durham um Michael do you think that Bristol City will be in good shape if they if they do get that promotion they've been there before in WSL but it has changed somewhat since they've got relegated yeah I suppose it goes back to what we said about Reading before it would be a side that you know, isn't supported by a Premier League club. But yeah, I mean, they've obviously really good history of of uh, of uh, success in the women's game. And I think it's good as well just for the league to have clubs in big cities. You know, Bristol is a huge city that has never had a Premier League club. Um, and yeah, I think if you just spread out the places where top level, uh, you know, WSL football is being played across the country, then it's good for, good for England as a whole. The brilliant thing about the written word is I always get to relay your quotes back to you like I did with Michael earlier when he was talking about the noon kickoffs uh, for <laughs> you Anita in your Guardian newsletter you said I didn't I didn't think I wanted to go into coaching when I retired I was fairly certain I'd be a frustrated coach but I also didn't just want to make a decision based on my perceptions of what it entailed without trying it why do you think you had that approach why what was in your head before going into the coaching world I think because, you know, if I'm honest, we, I've been in different uh, transitions within that football as a player when you've been in a top team with lots of good quality players and then you're in a team where you're in transition and you're bringing younger players in and you're wanting immediate rewards and you're knowing that, okay, well, some people aren't at the same level you're at right now. 
Um, and that can build that frustration because you're pulling towards ultimate goals, which is like winning titles or championships and things like that. So I thought, oh, part of me might have some of that in the coaching kind of, you know, you're working with players, you're actually trying to support their development and that kind of, oh, I just want it to happen. Why is it not happening now? Recognizing that there is a process and that takes time and you need patience and you need to have the belief in, in what you're doing and how you apply that. So um, I think that's why, because I know that, you know, as a player, sometimes you just lose your head. And as a coach, you tr you've got to try as much as possible to manage that and, and transfer. Keep it. Keep your head. Positive energy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, keep it. Keep your head in every situation as much as possible. Um, but also show the human side of yourself. You know, it's OK to show emotions as well. But I think players appreciate that, too. Um, you know, you, you want to show that you care and you have the belief and all of that. So um, that's the part of it as well that I think is is the great thing about football. Will Michael and I be speaking to you one day as a number one? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't know. I've been through so much transition in just a short space of time from retiring. Um, so I haven't really been able to just take it all in, I think, and, and reflect upon uh, what my long-term future is as a coach. Um, but I'm just taking one step at a time. And the first goal is trying to help Bristol uh, get promoted with alongside Lauren Smith, our head coach. And it's been a fantastic journey so far. We will check in with you again on that before the end of the season as well, Anita. Thank you. Uh, before we go, a bit of news, which won't come as a surprise, but we saw that the final day of fixtures were moved 24 hours earlier to May the 27th. It's to avoid clashing with the final day of the Premier League. I don't know why this wasn't already in the calendar, to be honest, but Arsenal against Aston Villa, Brighton-Leicester, which could be a big relegation decider, Liverpool-Man United, Man City against Everton, Reading versus Chelsea. Michael's already said that Reading have been a bit of an Achilles heel for Chelsea in the last few seasons. Uh, West Ham and Spurs uh, rounds that off. Uh, this weekend, though, it's FA Cup quarterfinal time. Um, let's remind you of those fixtures. Lewis against Manchester United. What a result they got with that tie. Uh, Birmingham against Brighton. Reading, Chelsea again. Why is that following us around this week? Um, and Aston Villa against Manchester City. Um, when it comes to the FA Cup quarterfinals, Michael, which one sticks out? I mean, there's a good spread of different type of games there. I think Villa City for me, because it's the two WSL sides, I think, in the best run of form at the moment. Villa have been really good since Christmas. And as we mentioned earlier, City are on a really good run as well. So there's that. But they're all interesting in different ways. I mean, Lewis, Manchester United, it's nice for Lewis to get more tension more publicity because what they're doing I think for the women's game is really good but uh, yeah if I had to choose one probably Villa City stands out yeah you just know that's going to be billed as daily versus bunny isn't it <laughs> it's going to be all about the strikers is there a game here that's all about the defenders Anita <laughs> all about the defenders um, maybe maybe Reading Chelsea if Chelsea is still struggling yeah. for for options up front Reading put 10 behind the ball and it's just going to be <laughs> Sam Kerr over the top right well, I was going to say that would be a double header of Chelsea, you know, Chelsea Reading and a lot of defending potentially. So <laughs> that would be the game to scrutinise, I think, for, a, a, you know, defensive play. Yeah. And, and Lewis must be a team as well that, that you know well um, from the championship. Uh, I mean, what they've done off the pitch has been as important as what they're doing on it. It's a fantastic club with such ambition, um, you know, progressive ideas, completely given us a new way to look at the game I think as a whole um, you know on and off the pitch and it, it's a great project um, and one of the teams in the championship again that is a fierce competitor even for us at Bristol so I, 
you know, it's great to see teams like this under the helm of Maggie Murphy and all the staff that are doing a great job there in the game. You know, it's um, mm. also, they've, I think they've been a source of inspiration to many of us working within the game but of, uh, in terms of new ways at looking how we can, you know, challenge and improve our own clubs and our environments as well. Um, we're going to leave it there for this week's Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Anita, Michael, thank you very much to you. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. Thanks as well to producer Abby for this week. Uh, please keep in touch on socials using the hashtag AthleticWFP. You can tag us in as well at the Athletic FC and at Offside Rule Pod. We love to hear from you. Get in touch and we'll speak to you next time. The Athletic. <laughs>